Hello and welcome to the Book of Acts. My name is Lloyd and we're looking at Paul and Barnabas in Pisidia and what happened there as Paul begins to preach to a Jewish audience about their Messiah. So I'm going to pray, read this out and then explain a little bit, explore a little bit about what God might be saying to us today. Lord Jesus, would you help us as we open your word? We need your help with every area of our lives. So would you inform our hearts today? Would you give us grace to receive the word of God? In the mighty name of Jesus, amen. So I'm reading from Acts chapter 13, verses 16 to 25. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, he says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted harm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, God did that, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no. But behold, after me is one coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So last week we looked at Paul and Barnabas beginning to preach the gospel in Pisidia, overshadowed by the abandonment of the team by John Mark, who they had been discipling. So they were invited to speak at the local synagogue, which Paul steps up to do. And that's what we're going to look at today. What did Paul say to this synagogue in Pisidia? said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers. So he's building bridges. Made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. So he's talking to them about their shared history. He's addressing this Jewish situation, this Jewish synagogue, with a bit of shared history. Building a bridge, we're the same. We've got this shared history, we've got this beautiful past. God has dealt with us. He's making a bridge to their hearts. So Paul emphasizes God's role, God's initiative in their history. God chooses them, God makes a way, God leads them. And this is a summary of how God has dealt with his people throughout all time. God always takes the first initiative. He is a covenant, covenanting God who deals with the people of Israel, his people. So generously, so graciously, he chose them. Why did he choose them? The starting point of all is that God favored a small, slave community. He made promises to them and to their forefathers and continued to deal with them, notwithstanding their constant grumbling, complaining, 
their sinfulness. God chose them whilst they were still small, still insignificant, whilst they were still outcasts, slaves, and he made them great. So there's no reason why God chose them in and of themselves. They were not magnificent. If you had to choose a likely candidate for you know, leadership, you'd choose someone who's maybe got a bit of gifting. There's none of that. He just chose them because he loved them. God takes what is broken and makes it beautiful. And this is what he does with his people time and time again. They did not deserve to be treated in this way. They didn't deserve to be chosen. It is purely good down to God's grace, his mercy. God owes them nothing. God puts an honor on his people and he grows their numbers. That's what I said, God, God grew their numbers. Even in captivity in Egypt, God made them great. He exalted the small, the insignificant, the lowly the marginalized, his divine favor rested on this people and they grew as a result. When you consider how the people of God treated him throughout all that time, through the desert years, through all the unbelief, they turn away from God, it is a magnificence of God's mercy and grace, the way in which he treated them, where he covenanted with such sinful, unruly people. He put up with them constantly giving them chances to repent and return to him. So God provided for them throughout the wilderness years and by his uplifted arm he led them from Egypt, from slavery, through the desert into the promised land. And it says for about 40 years he put up with them in the wilderness. God had to do the putting up. He had to put up with sin, with their constant griping and complaining. We only get a bit of it. Imagine if you've got the whole story. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. So on top of all this, God puts up with them and he just blesses them again. He fought their battles for them, giving such undeserving people an inheritance. And this took 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. God's promises may be slow, 450 years in the making, but they are sure. So once again, Paul describes God's hand in all things. He points, he points to God's work in all of this. So first of all, he puts up with Israel. God forbears. He fights their battles for them. He's a warrior God. He gives them an inheritance. He's a giving, gracious God. He settles them in Canaan. He gives them an inheritance. And he gives them judges to rule and lead them. And he's a fulfiller of all his promises. So all along, Paul is thrilling the Jewish congregation with this history of God. This is what God has done for you people. And now he's going to turn to David. And through David, we're going to get a glimpse of the son of David, Christ, the Messiah. So then they asked for a king, Paul said, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. So once again, it's God he responds and gives them this king, a king that they unrighteously had demanded. And sometimes God does that. He says, well, you're demanding this, get what you want. And they got a Saul. They could have waited for a David, but they insisted on a Saul. 
and Saul is a tragic figure who rejected God and was remarkably abandoned by God. God over and over again pleads with him, says, I'm going to give you another chance, I'm going to give you another chance. And every time Saul ignores God and decides to go his own way, and his sin became his punishment. And Saul is almost the transition between Samuel, from Samuel to David, the promised king, who is a type of Christ and who embodied the height of Israel as a nation. That was the glory of Israel when David came to the throne. It was a magnificent period of progress, of strength as a nation. The temple was, 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 was about to be built, worship was being established, and the nation of Israel was strong because God was with them. And when he had removed Saul, he raised up David to be king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. Once again, Paul shows God as the central figure who removes Saul out the way to prepare for David. God raises up David and God's assessment of David is in stark contrast to what he says about Saul. Saul was constantly disobeying God and David would be a man after God's heart who would do all his will. He'd be an obedient king doing God's will. David would obey God thoroughly. Of this man's offspring, talking about David, God has brought to Israel a saviour, Jesus, as he promised. So Paul skips through the rest of the history of Israel, which isn't very glorious, straight to Jesus, the Messiah. That's the purpose of Israel, is to bring forth the Messiah for the world. Up till now, the listening Jews are on the same page. They, they're, they're filled with wonder at this history, their history, so they think. But they, as a Jewish nation, had by, had by, by and large rejected Jesus. They had rejected the Messiah. They were most helpful in getting him to the cross. They rejected him. They, 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 the mob, the, the religious elite had created a mob and unjustly Jesus had been killed. And so here Paul begins to depart. He'd built bridges up to this point. And now Paul calls Jesus the Savior. He calls Jesus the promised one. He calls Jesus the Messiah. And when we preach Jesus, we preach good news, the gospel. And that can sometimes be offensive. And he says, as Paul said, before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. So John had raised the curtain for the Messiah. He had proclaimed a baptism of repentance, calling the nation away from their sin and to, to a fresh relationship with God, to their Messiah, who would rescue the nation. So John preached to all Israel, said to all the people of Israel. It was a moment of the entire nation coming alive to God's plans and purposes. It was almost like a revival. If you'd been alive when, when John the Baptist was baptizing people, you would have been forgiven for thinking that he was the Messiah. And the people mistook him for that. They said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? And so the Messiah was no surprise. The people were all on the edge of their seats talking about, talking about Messiah, Messiah. And John warned the nation about his coming arrival, that he was about to arrive. So they had no excuse for not, not expecting the Messiah. But John did it so humbly. 
he could have easily taken all the credit. He could have started his own religion. That's how many false religions start. People get full of themselves, get some revelation, and there we go. But John lays it down and he points to the Messiah. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. This is his answer to people who accused him of being the Messiah. Which wasn't a bad accusation because he was so fruitful in his ministry. And that's what Jesus assessed his ministry as as well. But behold, after me is coming one, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So John pointed so beautifully to the coming Messiah. He did not see himself as anything compared to Jesus. He didn't see himself as worthy even of the ministry which he led. He said, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. How many of us describe ourselves in that way with such humility, such brokenness, such abasement? Or rather, are we entitled, demanding our rights, almost like God owes us something? On that note, Paul is about to explain how far the Jewish people are from salvation if they depend on the law. He hopes that the humility of John, which he's just read out and just spoken about, will awaken them to the need to their own humility, to obey God, to humbly accept a saviour different to the one they had in their heads. So are you like the Jews? Maybe a nominal churchgoer, thinking that you're a you're a Christian, calling yourself a Christian, but essentially just a pew warmer, one who's gone along, maybe part of a cultural type religion, assuming that you're saved, not actually regenerate in your heart, not actually following and obeying Jesus, not actually born again, not actually humbled by the commands and teaching of Jesus. You need to repent and come to God, just like those Jews did, and receive the salvation that God has purchased and prepared for you. God is the main actor in all of history, even in your and my salvation. Come to Christ.